Well, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus a great deal on Jesus' last week. Have you ever noticed that? Just to kind of put it into perspective for you, Jesus lived approximately 33 years, which comes out to about 12,000 days. Yet, about one-third of the material of the four Gospels focus on the last eight days of Jesus' life. That's amazing, especially considering how much more the Gospel writers could have said about the rest of Jesus' life. For example, we know that he did a lot of miracles in his life that are recorded in Scripture. But the Apostle John tells us that he actually did many more miracles that were never recorded in Scripture. So they focus a lot on the last week of Jesus. In, in other words, the, the previous three years of ministry in some ways were almost kind of like a prelude to that final decisive week of Jesus' life. You say, well, why is that? Well, the writers recognized that this week was the reason that Jesus came to the earth, to die on the cross for the redemption of the world. And so the events of this last week, all of them take on great importance. And of course, we think of events such as the Last Supper, Judas' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, the cross, and the resurrection. But it all starts with really the first main event of the week, which all four Gospels mention, and that is Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, what we often call Palm Sunday. Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before. As a young boy, he went there, and in his ministry, he made that trip to Jerusalem. He was no stranger to Jerusalem. But there was something very different about this trip into Jerusalem. Indeed, this event is often called Jesus' triumphal entry. Now the question arises, why do we call it a triumphal entry when Jesus would die by the end of the week? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, today I want us to explore this incredibly important event in Jesus' life and see that his entry really was triumphal, as well as see why this matters to us today. So let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, and today we're going to see three parts of our passage of the triumphal entry. The first part is the preparations of Jesus, the, the preparations of Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Ephesus, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to, the Lord, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks and 
he sat on them. So the chapter begins by saying that Jesus was approaching Jesus. Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, and it was the time of the Feast of Passover. There were three main feasts that the Jews celebrated every year. The other two feasts were the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost. But the Feast of Passover was the most significant because it commemorated the time when God delivered the nation of Israel from under the bondage and oppression of Egypt. And thousands of pilgrims would come in to the city of Jerusalem, and the city would be filled with just this great anticipation and excitement. So it says there that when Jesus was in the city of Bethphage, that was a, a nearby town, he told two of his disciples to go into the village and there would be a donkey and a colt. And a colt, of course, was a young donkey. More than likely, this was the mother and its young. The Gospel of Mark indicates that Jesus um, rode the young donkey and presumably the mother donkey came along as well probably to calm the young donkey when it would go out onto the road and all of a sudden encounter this huge amount of people. Now this command from Jesus is interesting because it doesn't tell us how he knew there was a colt in the next village. Perhaps the, Jesus knew the owner since it was in a nearby village and he just simply made arrangements with the man. Or perhaps this was a case of Jesus using his omniscience. Either way, the point is, is that Jesus was preparing for this monumental entry. You might be asking, well, why a donkey? W wouldn't he want to ride something a little bit more powerful and majestic, like a horse? Well, the reason Jesus rode on a donkey is because Scripture had prophesied long ago that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The prophet Zechariah, about 500 years prior to this, had predicted this. And it says in, the, in Zechariah's prophecy that Jerusalem is called the daughter of, of Zion, which is a common way of describing the ancient city. The prophecy makes it abundantly clear that this would be the king that is coming to you. Here is the Messiah, Jerusalem, the Christ, and he is coming to you. This is the one that you have been waiting for. Now, obviously, Jesus did not need to ride the donkey to get there, so to speak. We know from his life that he walked all over the place, um, whether it was in the wilderness, whether it was going up steep mountainous hills. In fact, Scripture never indicates that Jesus used any kind of assistance to travel on land. Uh, one article that I read said that a conservative estimate would be that Jesus walked over 15,000 miles during his lifetime. So I don't think he needed a Fitbit or anything like that. This was a guy who was always on the move. So he didn't need to get assistance to walk a very short distance from Beth Fodge to Jerusalem. But he chose to ride that donkey because he wanted to demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah. And just so you get this, he wasn't riding the donkey to become the Messiah, but precisely because he was the Messiah, he rode to Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, when Christ entered, it says that he entered humbly, and it also that he entered peacefully. 
in ancient times, a king would often ride out to war riding a horse. But when a king wanted to come in peace, he would ride on a donkey. So Jesus rides on a donkey to proclaim to everyone that he is there to declare peace to Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Now it's interesting because Jesus' peaceful nature is in stark contrast to really the, the aggressive and militaristic hopes of the people. The Jews were longing for a Messiah who would come and liberate them from their Roman oppressors. And in fact, for the vast majority of the last 600 years, Jerusalem had been under the control of a foreign power. Can you imagine if you grew up hearing about a glorious golden day when your people were free and powerful, but all you knew was bondage? So that's the the city that Jesus was coming into. And so the Jews were yearning for a leader to come and to kick out the Romans. But what's so remarkable is that in the midst of all that fervor, Jesus comes peacefully riding a donkey. So again, that first part of the triumphal entry is the preparations of Jesus. So now we turn to the second part in verses 8 through 11, and that is the actual entrance of Jesus. Let's read verses 8 to 11 together. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the roads would have been packed with pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. It's estimated that about thirty to 40,000 people lived in Jerusalem normally. But during these festivals, those numbers could swell by tenfold. And so there would be a massive amount of people on the roads just making their way into Jerusalem. And of course, there probably was a bigger cluster around Jesus because of who he was. And we know a little bit more in recent moments there, he had healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, which would have only stirred the excitement around him. The Gospel of John also adds an insight that there was another group of people that had already made it to Jerusalem, but they had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They had left the city of Jerusalem and had gone out to meet him. So you have these two groups of people, the pilgrims who were just making their way into the city, this other group of people coming out of the city to come alongside Jesus and to escort him into the city. And so as this caravan progresses, the expectations, no doubt, were just escalating and escalating. And you see their expectations in a couple of different ways. You said, first of all, it says they spread their garments before him. And this was a way in, in this ancient culture to pay respects and homage to royalty, to show your honor of them and your submission to him. In the Old Testament, when King Jehu was there, he was welcomed by people spreading their garments so that he would walk on them. They were also cutting branches and spreading them on the road, providing kind of a, a festive ground cover for, for Jesus. Again, the Gospel of John shares an insight that the branches that were, they were cutting 
um, were actually palm trees, and that's why we call it Palm Sunday. You say, well, why would they be using a palm tree? Well, the palm leaf was a, was a symbol of victory over an enemy. And you can only imagine what was going through the crowd's mind as they had these palm branches that they, they were hoping that Jesus would come and he would deliver them from their enemy. And their enemy for them was the Romans. And, of course, the whole Passover celebration just heightened that because they were remembering what God did for them back in Egypt days, and now they were hoping that it would happen again under the Roman oppressors. We also see here that the people were shouting praises. They were shouting, Hosanna, which was a Hebrew word for save, I pray. Talking about being saved from your circumstances and deliverance. And by Jesus' day, that cry, Hosanna, had kind of become sort of a shout of praise that, that, that was used like we say, hallelujah, right? And so they were shouting, Hosanna. And they also were expecting that this man would be the Messiah. Notice how they call him the son of David there, a clear messianic title. We just talked about how he had healed Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus called him the son of David. And this connection with David comes through in the other Gospels as well. Mark adds that the crowd said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. John mentions that there were shouts of, quote, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So the crowd sensed that, that Jesus, he was the Messiah. He was the long-promised son of David. Fittingly, entering to, into Jerusalem, which was called the son of David, the city of David, and then he would establish that Davidic kingdom for the people. Now, it's interesting here about Jesus' reaction is that he doesn't tell them to be quiet, as he so often does during his ministry. Previously, Jesus didn't want to prematurely thwart his ministry. He wanted time to preach the Gospels preach the gospel to people and to train up the disciples to take over his ministry when he was going to depart. But now, for the first time, Jesus doesn't try to stop them. He receives their acclamation because the time had come. The king was now on the scene, and he would no longer hush the crowds. In fact, in the, in the gospel of Luke, when it reports this episode, the religious leaders tell Jesus to silence the crowds. And remember how Jesus famously said that even if he tried to do so, that even the rocks would cry out. This was how significant the moment was. The king was coming to the city of Jerusalem. And the result, as we just read there in verse 10, says that when Jesus entered the, the city, the city was stirred. That Greek word stirred is where we get our English word seismic. Now, we know that word is used for what? Earthquakes. So this was a huge uproar. Everybody was excited. It was loud, and there was tremendous anticipation. In the closing verse, it mentions how the word had spread that the prophet from Nazareth was coming to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday had all the makings of a Hollywood ending crowd meets its long-awaited king. Certainly Jesus would rejoice at this response, right? 
So this leads to the third part of the triumphal entry, the sorrow of Jesus, the sorrow of Jesus. So please turn to the parallel account that's found in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry, and we won't kind of go over what he has already covered so far. We'll pick up in verse 41 and go from there. So Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and following. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus does not rejoice over the crowds, but he weeps. And Scripture records that Jesus doesn't cry very often, at least found in Scripture. There's only one other case that we read this, and that is found when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died. You might be wondering, well, I don't understand. Why, why would Jesus not be delighted that the crowds were rejoicing? What would make him weep at this moment? Well, he says in verse 42, that gives the answer. Jesus weeps because people were looking for the wrong thing. They were looking for a military Messiah to come and to destroy the Romans and to give them freedom. They were looking for the wrong kind of peace. And because they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah, they, and he knew, they would soon reject him and crucify him a few days later when they realized that he was not the king that they sought. Now, the prophecy that Jesus utters in verses 43 and 44 is God's judgment upon Israel for rejecting his son. And this prophecy that Jesus gives would be fulfilled less than 40 years later when the Romans came because of the Jewish rebellions and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem and set up a siege for about four months until they finally were able to breach the city. And what happened next was truly catastrophic. The ancient Roman, excuse me, Jewish historian Josephus estimated that over a million people died as a result of this. And almost 100,000 people were enslaved. The cost of rejecting Jesus was incredibly high. And so Jesus knew this and was sorrowful. So the climax of the triumphal entry is filled with bittersweet irony. Here comes Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, which literally means, that word Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. He is the prince of peace. He's fulfilling this long-awaited prophecy about the king coming to provide peace. But the people are ignorant of the plans and purposes of God. So what does this mean, this event, what does this mean to us 2,000 years later? Well, let me mention two points that I would want to impress on us today. First, accept what Scripture says about the Messiah. 
accept what Scripture says about the Messiah. In Jesus' day, the crowds maintained preconceived notions about what the Messiah had to be like. For them, he had to come and to destroy the Romans. Likewise, for many people today, they have preconceived notions about what Jesus must be like as well. That he is only a good teacher or a gentle friend or he is an advocate of whatever political cause they're behind at the moment. Sometimes people are more eager to go read a new book that will have some odd conjectures about Jesus than actually going and reading the New Testament itself. Or maybe they like certain things that the New Testament says about Jesus, but other things that the New Testament says they reject because they don't like them. Friends, we can't have a closed mind to who Jesus is. But we need to accept what the inspired and authoritative witnesses about Jesus actually teach. And that includes the Old Testament that did predict that the Messiah would suffer and die. Read Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, that predicted these things all along. Even the disciples deserted Jesus because their preconceived notions about this militaristic hero, Messiah, were so strong that even after being with him for three years, they abandoned Jesus. This also means the New Testament that speaks of Jesus as a tender, merciful, kind, benevolent Savior, but as one who also brings judgment and promises we must accept what Jesus, excuse me, what the scripture says about Jesus. Second thing that I want us to think about today is that Jesus' entrance was truly triumphant. It was truly triumphant. The Old Testament had long predicted the Messiah's death, and Jesus came here to die. Even before this week ever started, he had told his disciples at least three times that he was going to die at the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans. This was his mission, and he accomplished his mission. There was no way for our sin to be atoned for. We were guilty, right? We needed someone to stand in our place and to be our substitute. And because he loves us so much, Jesus was determined to accomplish this mission of standing in our place and dying for our sins so that we would be cleansed and that we would also receive his righteousness. Jesus did exactly that. He did exactly that. He entered the city to defeat sin and death. Likewise, he defeated Satan. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus speaks about Satan uh, the night before the cross. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan was no longer the ruler of this world. He couldn't accuse God's people of guilt anymore because Jesus was going to die for their sins and wipe away all of their guilt and transgression. Jesus, friend, was not thwarted. He was victorious. When he entered the city, he declared his kingship and he accomplished the purpose that he was sent to do. And he did so gladly. Church, 
we need to live in light of this victory. We need to live in light of this victory. Because of him, we should not fear Judgment Day, as we spoke of last week from the Sermon on the Mount. And we can face any hardships that come our way. We can face and deal with persecution. We can deal with death because of what Christ has done. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, I think it's crucial that we go back once again to what Jesus accomplished. His victory puts everything in perspective. Romans 8:37 to 39 declares, "And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are guaranteed an eternity with God in a new creation as we fellowship with all the people of God from all time. We are guaranteed to enjoy resurrection bodies that will never sin and that will never get sick with any kind of virus or any other kind of ailment. Those promises must be the anchor of our souls. So let me encourage you to go back to that triumphal entry with Jesus and celebrate this morning. And if you never have accepted what Scripture says about the Messiah, may today be the day that you call out, Hosanna. Call out, save me, I pray. Call to the Lord to save you from your sins, and he will, he will. Yes, each person needs to be saved because our sin separates us from God, and he will cause, and that sin causes his wrath to fall on us when it comes to judgment day. And Jesus will bring judgment. He announced judgment on Jerusalem because it did not receive him. Likewise, he warns of judgment if we do not receive him. But here's the good news. Jesus first offers peace, just as he did with Jerusalem. Each of us can experience peace with God. However, we must receive peace on his terms. You say, well, what are his terms? Well, his terms are that we turn from our sins and believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, our Lord and our Savior. Friend, let me invite you today to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Believe who he says he is, and that he lived that perfect sinless life so that he died not for his sins, but for our sins for our to be our substance. Romans 10.9 gives this wonderful promise. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. And we thank you that you are indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for this triumphal entry.
May your word encourage your people today to live in light of that victory. And Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish its purposes. And perhaps someone who's listening, who has never placed their faith in you, may even now they pause in this moment and cry out to you, Lord, I need to be forgiven. Forgive me of my sin. Today, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow him all of my days. Lord, we look forward to this Easter week and all that you have for us. We know that this is an unusual time and circumstance. But Lord, we know how special and precious this week is. May you encourage our hearts this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.